Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Try This from The Washington Post is a new series of audio courses that takes on life's everyday challenges. I'm Christina Quinn, and I'll help you find real guidance with practical, easy enough approaches that won't feel like the advice you hear everywhere else. Each audio course will have anywhere from two to five classes on things like how to get better sleep, how to get the most out of your relationships, and even how to get out of your own way. Find Try This from The Washington Post, wherever you listen. One of the things that's striking for me is that a lot of people are having a lot of emotions on not-so-good facts or not-so-good frameworks. The idea that it is too late, the climate movement isn't achieving anything. The frameworks are ideas about the nature of power and the nature of change. Either you demand it on Tuesday and they deliver it on Wednesday or you've lost rather than that. Change often happens in protracted, unpredictable, sidelong ways. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and joined, as always, by my co-host, Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And What Could Go Right is our weekly podcast. It is also, conveniently enough, the name of our weekly newsletter, which you can get by going on to progressnetwork.org and signing up for it. And it's free, just like this podcast, even if it costs you a little bit of time. But hopefully that is time well spent. And the point of this podcast, the point of our newsletter, the point of the Progress Network is to take a look at what is going right in the world, or at least at the very, very least, to take a look at what people are doing to make sure that things go right and not colossally wrong, that the future is one of our hopes and our dreams and not of our fears. And certainly one of the things that has been most animatingly negative in our world today has been the legitimate concern about the arc and pace of climate change. But there's been a lot that's been going on in climate land and in human innovation and technology that probably has not gotten the attention it deserves. And we're gonna to talk today to two authors who have published a new book that I think points in a somewhat different direction, a much more hopeful one about all the progress that has been made here and all the progress that continues to be made and what each of us can do. So Emma, who are we gonna to talk to today? So today we're going to talk to Rebecca Solnit, who's a writer, historian, and activist. She's the author of several books, many of them big name ones, like Men Explain Things to Me. She's a columnist at Harper's and a frequent contributor to The Guardian and a longtime climate and human rights activist, as I mentioned before. And she has put together a book, Not Too Late, with digital storyteller and activist Thelma Young Lutunatambua. She is the co-founder of Not Too Late, which is a project to invite newcomers into the climate movement to provide climate facts and also for encouragement for people that have been in the climate movement a long time and are starting to feel pretty tired out. She also currently works at the Solutions Project. And before that, she was in various roles supporting the global climate movement. She is calling in today from Fiji and we're talking to Rebecca in San Francisco. I'm in Greece as per usual and you're in New York. So we are multi-continental, multi-time zone and everywhere you are in the world, it is not too late. Rebecca and Thelma, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you on our podcast, What Could Go Right? One of the things Emma and I talked about a lot before we launched the Progress Network in the fall of 2020 was what do we do about the question of climate change and the impending challenges of it, especially given that of all the panoply of problems that are besetting the world and humanity today, the one that seems to fill people with the greatest amount of chronic agita is climate change. And I think this book that you have both created is a way of, of trying to help people through that despair toward the possibility. So maybe just tell us a little bit about what you learned in, in, in compiling the essays in this book and why both 
of you individually and together feel that in fact there is possibility of constructive change around this and not just oh well we're baked what we learned when we did the book is a bunch of different things but two things that surprised us as we worked with 20 other collaborators to pull the essays together some things that continually came up is how crucial communities are at the heart of our solutions and at the heart of our future and at the heart of the why we do this work. So often, I think especially in the West, the language around climate change and climate action is focused on individual action, on driving less is I'm going to do this less. But what we really found is that communities are absolutely crucial to, to building the solutions that we need. We have to act on the level of communities. And their solution, and the communities are also part of the possibility in the progress of solving the climate crisis. We get to know our community much better. We get to be more connected with them. And we get to, get to maintain those connections. So, community was a big theme that kept on coming up again and again. And the other one that kept on coming up again and again was love. Now, love has to be the center of the work. And again, I think in the climate narrative, so often it's fear and despair which dominate. But with these essays, so many of the authors brought back love as a core part of what we need to center in climate action. And to talk about climate emotion, one of the things that's striking for me is that a lot of people are having a lot of emotions based either on not-so-good facts or not-so-good frameworks. And you, the not-so-good facts include the idea that it is too late, nobody's doing anything, we don't have the solutions, we don't know what to do. The climate movement isn't achieving anything. The frameworks are ideas about the nature of power and the nature of change in which power is in the hands of a very few and the elite and we have none ourselves and which change is either you demand it on Tuesday and they deliver it on Wednesday or you've lost rather than that change often happens in protracted, unpredictable, sidelong ways. So I see a lot of people having a lot of emotions without really fully understanding the situation. I spent yesterday with somebody who works closely with a lot of climate leaders in North America, and she said a remarkable thing to me. She said, they're dealing with a lot of stuff. One thing none of them are dealing with is despair. And I think it's partly when you fully engage with the work, you're not like, what is the existential meaning of it all? You're like, how do we get you know, this legislation passed, how do we build this movement? How do we protect this forest? You're looking at the concrete things that are the building blocks of the transformations we need. And then finally, and Thelma can speak to this better, but something that's also striking for me is people in frontlines communities, not just around climate, but in general, in my experience, tend to not be despondent and they don't give up because for us middle-class white people in America, giving up doesn't really, is it's an attitude and we will still have comfortable, safe lives, essentially. For people on the front lines, where giving up means that your children will starve, the dictator will crush you, you will lose your ancestral lands, you will lose your culture, you will lose your life. People in those situations don't tend to give up so readily and so there's a whole other conversation that maybe we don't need to get into, both about why middle class, first world people tend towards these dismal emotions and why we focus on them so much in the climate conversation. Rebecca, I'm going to ask you to keep going because I think it's a fascinating thread to pull on. One thing I see a lot, I think of concentric rings of information and engagement. The outer ring is full of bad information. And one thing is, the good news about climate is mostly incremental, it's wonky, it's technical, you know, and you have to be kind of nerdy even to follow that, oh my God, more solar is being, enough solar, according to Bill McKibben's latest dispatch, is being installed every day on Earth. That's the equivalent of a new nuclear power plant going online. So it's like we're putting a new nuclear power plant online every day. But that's not like, a nuclear meltdown or a flood or a fire. 
I'm part of it is newspapers and news media are really good at reporting on something that happened yesterday. And they're not good at something that's been steadily happening for five years or 10 years or 20 years. For example, a lot of people don't understand that we've had an energy revolution that is absolutely astonishing. And if you look back to where we were 20 years ago, unbelievable. It's not news because it's happened really incrementally. 20 years ago, even 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, solar and wind were utterly inadequate for us to leave the age of fossil fuel behind. But through a lot of breakthroughs in engineering and design and the fact that the larger the scale you implement something on, the cheaper it gets, we are in an unimaginably better place when it comes to renewables than we were before. So we've had this energy revolution and like it's not even visible and it's happening in these extraordinary ways. The Guardian just did a piece citing the energy policy group Ember saying that the energy transition is happening so fast yeah. that we may yet keep to the 1.5 degree pathway. The findings suggest the world may be close to reaching the peak of the global power sector's carbon emissions and they could soon even begin to fall in line with global climate targets. Um, because carbon emissions from the global electricity sector may peak this year after plateauing in the first half of the year. So there's a ton of news that's actually wildly encouraging, but either you have to add up all the climate movements that have shut down all the pipelines or all the solar that's being implemented. So part of it is just informational. Part of it is attitudinal. The best movie I've seen about how change works, let alone about how we respond to the climate crisis, is this movie hardly anybody's seen called To the End about that goes from the birth of the Sunrise Movement and their generation of the Green New Deal through Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's introduction of that in Congress and her involvement through Biden's climate platform and Build Back Better to finally the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is not nearly as great as the Green New Deal, but without the Green New Deal, it might not exist. So it gives you this larger picture of how change happens. But there's this beautiful moment in it where there's a guy who I think was the communications director for the Sunrise Movement. He's unloading a station wagon in a warehouse that's clearly part of a movement. And he says, people aren't doing anything. Come up to me and ask me how we're going to win and tell me that my strategy is wrong, etc." And I just look at them and say, help me unload this car. And I love that because it's so much like you can kind of sit home being thinking abstract thoughts about how do we get to the mountaintop? Oh, that mountain is unclimbable. Or you can put on your little backpack and rope yourself in with other climbers and take a step and take another step or help somebody climb or, you know, fix an anchor for them. And so with the book, Not Too Late, we wanted to do a number of things. The first thing is to just give people a good overview of the situation. But we also wanted to remind, give people not only the facts, but the frameworks to think about change, to think about hope, to think about how we tell the story, to try and find ways to help people imagine, to understand how much has happened and to imagine that more can happen. Something I've started saying a lot is the world of 2023 is completely unimaginable from the perspective of 1973, whether you're looking at women's rights, rights for queer people, you can look at any number of things. But you can also look back in 1973 and say, every good thing we have now is because somebody then was starting something, not knowing if they would win, not knowing what it would look like. But I know how different the status of women was in this country and throughout the world 50 years ago. Today, the National Women's Party lobbies for the 26th Amendment to guarantee women equal rights under the law. That amendment would make women people in a legal sense for the first time. There are women who belonged to the freedom movement, like these SDS girls, until they found that they were expected to make coffee, not policy. And those women didn't know if they would win. The world has changed remarkably. So if you can imagine, if you can look back from 2023 to see how different the world was in 1973 and how all the good things happened, and yes, a lot of bad things happened. 
But we did win a bunch of these things. Just as 2023 was unimaginable 50 years ago, 50 years in the future is both unimaginable and something we can understand how to work towards and understand how what we do now is what will make the world livable. For example, for Thelma's kid, who will be 51 in 2073. The climate crisis is impacting people, and yet we are still holding conferences. 25-year-old Vanessa Nakate has become the face of climate activism in Africa. You know, you, you mentioned the, the early 70s and also the, the challenges of media on reporting on constructive change. I mean, certainly we've, we've talked a lot on this podcast about just the incentives of what constitutes a story that gets attention, right? So rising crime rates, spiking crime is a story. Declining crime rates is not a story. And the same thing is true about climate and, and change. And, and, and this then affects how people who are engaged in the urgency of this communicate publicly, right? To so the, the IPCC, which comes out with its reports, and is a, you know, the kind of synthesis of what a lot of scientists around the world are doing in its public and press release form has gotten increasingly more hyperbolic because the incentives are you, you need to make these, you know, very extreme statements in order to get notice and get attention, as opposed to some of the things you've just talked about, Rebecca and you, Thelma, of the, the changes that are more gradual that have happened over time are, are not as amenable to notice and headlines. And a lot of the contemporary environmental movement comes out of that 1973 post period where a lot of people were legitimately had a lot of animosity toward capitalism and the belief that capitalism was a destructive system. And that is carried through into the contemporary environmental urgency, which is, you know, companies, multinationals, anybody engaged in that system cannot inherently change these arcs until we radically change the system. And that creates its own tension too about solutions in the midst of a system that may be compromised. And then you have Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, which was a wake-up call to a lot of people, but it also set the tone of what a lot of people think is the way you should talk about these things, you know, with the kind of pounding the table of do something now or we're all screwed. We'll be right back after this break. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. So, so much of the solutions that are coming up on climate, the ones that are having the deepest and long-lasting impact, these solutions are coming up from the front lines. So it's the communities that have been impacted by climate for the longest time, and not just climate injustice, but environmental injustice. Those communities have been working on solutions for decades, and so they've been able to find what the solutions are. And so many of those communities are in black and brown communities because of the history of redlining. You have black and brown communities have had to face um, environmental injustice in a much deeper way. So you also have a lot of this incredible leadership coming from black and brown communities on the front lines who, who have developed the solutions. They're saying that they know what it'll take to not just limit emissions, but actually build regenerative economies that help all people. So there's these incredible solutions happening. And there's been a trend in climate journals in the past couple of years where 
climate journalists are finally seeing that justice and equity are a really key component of the climate story as well. And something, I work at the Solutions Project, and every year we do the Climate Solutions Narrative Trends Report. And last year we found that, you know, if a reporter mentions communities of color, they are the article is more likely to mention solutions as well. Versus if they don't mention their communities of color, then they are less likely to mention solutions. And so it's really interesting. If we're going to talk about solutions, we have to also talk about who is creating those solutions and, you know, what are the systemic issues that have maybe kept those solutions from getting the spotlight that they need. Can you give us an example of some of these solutions that are bubbling up in these communities? I mean, I'm pretty sure you're I think you're talking about an American context. Just to expand the conversation a little bit. I live in Athens, Greece, right? Which I would consider being on the front lines. It's probably the city in Europe that's going to be most affected by climate change. The city is now boiling like six months out of the year and simultaneously on fire for, for three months out of the year. And I have to be honest, like I don't see solutions coming from Greece. So I'm just curious what's coming to your mind when you talk about solutions that are coming from marginalized communities in the United States, just to connect that those those dots for people who might not be aware. Uh, a great example is in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, as a U.S. colony, has faced so many years of frustration and oppression. And what we've seen, you know, with Hurricane Maria, their grid system was just decimated. And then because of capitalism, the grid was not fixed properly. And so in subsequent hurricanes, people have not had access to steady energy. And so what communities have done is that they've come together and reimagined what could an energy grid look like if people had control over it. And so you're going to get, you're seeing these solar microgrids popping up in Puerto Rico that are created by communities. And so when Hurricane Fiona hit last year, people were able to have power. Local health clinics were able to have power. And it came from this idea of energy democracy. Energy democracy is a really powerful term that has come from the front lines. That's all about how can people take control over their, their power and their electricity. Um, utility companies in the U.S. are largely monopolies, and a lot of them do not want to see community power on an energy level. You're also seeing similar movements in California, in New York City, in Detroit, where communities are saying, like, we have been disenfranchised, so we're going to build our own energy systems from the bottom up so that all people doesn't don't just have access to power, but have access to affordable energy, too. So the energy democracy movement is just one example of that. That is a really powerful uh, movement. And again, these communities have been thinking about these solutions, some of them for, for decades now. Yeah. You know, there's also an element of that where there's been such a kind of urgent fearfulness around where this is heading that anybody who offers sort of interim solutions, um, pragmatic or otherwise, can very easily can be demonized by a movement. I think that Zachary made a really interesting point that a lot of people are stuck kind of Al Gore inconvenient truth era. But what's striking about that, well, two things that are striking about it, one is that when the inconvenient truth was made, we didn't really have good solutions. We didn't really have a path to get away from fossil fuel. We're in a completely different place right now, and Al Gore is talking in a completely different way himself. I have a quote from the interview he just did with David Remnick at The New Yorker that I think is pretty riveting, and that is part of the hopeful framework most people don't have. He said, the climate crisis is really a fossil fuel crisis. There are other components of it for sure, but 80% of it is the burning of fossil fuels. And scientists now know, and this is a relatively new finding, a very firm understanding, that once we stop net additions to the overburden of greenhouse gases, once we reach so-called net zero, then temperatures on Earth will stop going up almost immediately. The lag time is as little as three to five years. They used to think that temperatures would keep on worsening because of positive feedback loops, and some things tragically will. The melting of the ice, for example, will continue, though we can moderate the pace of that. The extinction crisis will continue without other major changes. 
But we can't stop temperatures from going up almost immediately, and that's the switch we need to flip. And then if we can stay at true net zero, half of all human-caused greenhouse gas pollution will fall out of the atmosphere in 25 to 30 years. So we can start the long and slow healing process almost immediately if we act. And that's what he just said. And that is just so contrary to how most people think about it. It comes out of new science. It hasn't been circulated widely. And I fully recognize what extraordinary things would have to happen for us to reach a true and honest net zero. But the fact that there's not just punishments if we don't, but rewards if we do, is amazing. And I think another thing that Thelma and I really share is a sense that also per Al Gore, the conversation around climate has mostly been about austerity, the idea that we now live in an age of plenty, which isn't true for most people on earth right now. Um, and that somehow what climate requires of us is austerity. But I think even for those of us who are affluent, we live in an age of poverty, of social connection, of confidence in the world around us, trust in institutions, hopefulness about the future, you know, quality of time to relate to other human beings, other species, the natural world. And that what the climate crisis requires of us could create a lot more abundance on all those fronts, as well as a world of much, that's just so much less poisonous because fossil fuel is poison in the air, in the water, in the land, in our food. Fossil fuel kills 8 million people a year alone just through particulate matter, at, you know, mostly in Asia, but in other places as well. It's a huge, it also poisons our politics. So I think that there's ways to radically reframe where we are and where we could be from the idea that we're now clinging to some kind of security and unfortunately it requires fossil fuels to, wow, like getting away from all this would be a huge improvement and we know how to do it. Not everything can change overnight and not everyone's going to buy an electric car tomorrow if they have an, an older oil gasoline car and not every country in the world uh, has the means or the aid to go to renewables overnight, meaning that there's a lot that kind of goes on in the interim where human beings need to have their needs their needs met. And, and often those needs are uh, going to be met by carbon-based fuels until there's an alternative that is cheaper and accessible. And there's been a tendency to sort of dismiss the needs of the moment, the imperatives of the moment, in light of the imperatives of the future. And I wonder how you think about that and try to balance those, what can be competing imperatives. I'm really hesitant of that messaging because that's used by the fossil fuel industry to justify their existence and justify like not transitioning fast enough. The fossil fuel industry is saying, oh, you need us, you need us, so therefore we can't transition. And so they've been using that messaging and, you know, behind that back with all of their obstruction of momentum. And so the truth is that we have 95% of the technology that we need to have a functioning economy. We have the technology. What's lacking is political will to transition. And we need to, what people don't understand is the extent of the solutions that exist. And the main barrier is is people, it is the blockading of groups like the fossil fuel industry. So that's, that's absolutely crucial. And I think what movements demise or call out is greenwashing or false solutions. And again, this is a lot of extractive industries who want to keep on extracting. You want to keep on making money. And so they throw up these false solutions just in the name of of pretending like they're part of the solutions when actually they just want to keep on making a profit. So that's what gets called out, those false solutions. That's what gets called out. People are um, hungry for, for real solutions. And that's what I keep on hearing is people want to hear stories about communities building back better. People want to hear stories of positive legislation. So that's that's like... That's not what's being demonized. It's what's being demonized is is any pro any project 
that one sees uh, sacrifice zones as acceptable, which means like communities or land that's it's okay to sacrifice them and the name of profit. And so the transition off fossil fuels needs to happen ASAP as soon as possible. So we need to do whatever we need to remove the blockades to get that going. I'm going to push back on that, Thelma. I don't. I don't agree that those things are not demonized. I mean, the the U.S. Climate Envoy and John Kerry's office is certainly in in 2021. I think they've backed away from this a bit. Uh, was threatening developing countries that were trying to provide power and electricity with whatever means they had, whether that meant that they had local coal or they had, unfortunately, the the best they could do was some dirty carbon alternatives, but in the face of having no power for people, or at least trying to build something that was a, a compromised version of hydro and saying, if you don't make this into pure renewables, we're going to cut off aid and without providing any aid for the alternatives. On a global level, that's true. Like you have countries that, um, like you have a lot of industrial countries who are bullying developing countries uh, to transition faster, but they're not providing the the financing. They're not providing the resources, and they're not providing the technology. And so, this is what's absolutely crucial is for industrialization. Industrialized nations, who let's be clear, cause the climate crisis, they need to actually pay up. Like it is time for them to pay up. And this is why coming into COP twenty eight, that's happening soon in Dubai. The fight over loss and damage is going to be one of the biggest fights out there because, you know, countries who are being impacted, who did the least to cause the crisis, they are saying, hey, we need money to transition our economies. We need to do this. But that requires paying up and that payments are going to have to come by industrialized countries. And so that's a crucial part of the question is recognizing who cause the crisis and industrialized countries need to take up take that responsibility and and start paying out to the loss and damage funds and not just like pay out to it but pay directly to communities so there's a study that looked at the uk climate aid budget and that that's supposed to go to you know help renewable energy in developing countries and other climate projects two billion dollars or two billion pounds out of that just went to big consulting companies who then were advising then industrialization, industrial advising developing countries. So two billion dollars out of the UK's climate budget went to big consulting companies. And so this is why we have to put communities at the center. Communities have to have say of of how the climate aid is coming into them. And there are some really great examples of community-controlled climate funds. Anyway, I'm getting off topic a little bit. But yeah, we, the money has to, has to start moving from industrialized countries, and they can't just be pointing the finger. I want to go back to this question of who caused this crisis. I think that, you know, obviously, if you look at the math, it's obvious that industrialized countries, I would say, got there first, right? They had the ability to industrialize. Industrialized countries are the ones that are putting out the most emissions. No argument with that. What I'm curious about is how that transitions onto individuals. Like, I've heard a lot of people that are not involved heavily in climate activism, but care about climate just as a, as a person, express a lot of guilt and feel that there's a lot of, like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing here because I feel like everything I do, because we live in a system that's, you know, running off fossil fuels, it feels like everything I do is sort of morally complicit. And most people don't particularly want to cut their flights and vacations to Spain or whatever, but they also feel bad about doing so. You guys have been in this space for a long time. What are your thoughts around that? What do you tell people? What do you advise? Maybe, Rebecca, do you want to go with that? And the first thing is that the fossil fuel industry really promoted the climate footprint thing to make us feel that we needed to improve ourselves rather than fight them. And so that's one piece of it. It it basically turns people towards their own virtue, you know, go vegan, ride a bicycle, don't do this, don't do that, a bunch of renunciations, rather than looking at large the large-scale transformation that is actually what we need. Another thing is that the richest 1% of human beings on earth 
have twice the carbon footprint as the poorest 50% of human beings on earth. We are not all equally responsible. There's this weird kind of almost theological language of personal guilt that requires personal expiation that doesn't address the deeply unequal impact, which you can talk about both by nation, but also by individual and uh, wealth status. And then finally, another piece of the personal virtue thing that I find really problematic is I'm here in San Francisco. I rode a bicycle to do my errands a day, partly because San Francisco now has, thanks to bicycle activists, bike lanes everywhere, drivers, except for the driverless cars, are quite used to bicyclists, etc. I get 100% clean power for the electricity, the computer I'm talking to you on is running off and everything else in my house because people fought to force our pretty corrupt power company to offer that option and to speed their transition. So even the things we can do as individual consumers depend on collective effort. And these days, in, at least in North America, I don't know about the world, you don't have to opt into a car with a seatbelt. That's just standard. There's been incredible organizing to ban gas hookups and new construction in many parts of the United States. It started in Berkeley. The whole state of Washington got on board, New York City and Los Angeles and lots of other cities. You can now virtuously decide to get rid of your gas appliances. But in the future, you won't even have to make that choice. If you buy a new house, it will just be an all-electric house. But there's also a way that the climate footprint thing casts us as consumers. And I want everyone to have a sense of themselves as citizens, which for me is not about your passport and national status, but a sense of belonging to something greater, of being able to participate in the greater whole. There's absolutely nothing wrong with individual virtue, but it is not by itself either a solution nor is focusing on it um, helpful when we need people to become parts of movements, to become active, to become participants in these larger systems. And as Thelma said, community, I think, is one of the goals and one of the things we may realize with the, uh, the better world we could make if we do what the climate requires of us. But community as being parts of movements and organizations of democracy, of becoming something more powerful than the fossil fuel industries and their allied powers to speed the transition that they're trying to stall is crucial. So there's, you know, and I do think that some change does happen by catalyst. And if enough people are vegan, even fast food restaurants offer vegan options, which makes being vegan more viable. Sometimes it tastes good and people choose it. So there's other ways change happens, but quietly staying at home being virtuous doesn't really get us where we need to go with the speed and scale we need. Well, I want to thank you both for the conversation and for your book, which I encourage everyone to go get. I love your tagline on, uh, <laughs> which is on Amazon about ordering the book from anyone sources but Amazon. other than Amazon. <laughs> yeah, thought, Amazon the destroyer. I, I yes. thought it was a great a great tagline, but of course it ended saying, look, you know, I also prefer you to just buy the book, even if but it's a it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant little bio. Anyway, Thelma, Rebecca, thank you both. Um and I, I'm speaking for Emma, I think we've enjoyed the conversation immensely. Thank great. you so much. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with everything everywhere daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. 
So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. So we've had a bunch of conversations, Emma, about climate and climate change. And I think a lot of them are you know, animated by this. Things are, are not as grim as we think, that changes are available to us. The technologies have moved much more quickly, and even the deployment of those technologies has, has happened much more quickly than pe- people realize, and certainly than media attends to. And there is this continual tension, and I try to bring it up in the conversation, between the kind of the pragmatism, idealism, and and Rebecca and Thelma both have their way of answering that. I think other people would feel that there's not enough, there's not enough space for the pragmatic because it often sounds like what fossil fuel or sounds like what apologists or sounds like what some people who have opposed these changes have used. From my perspective, we have to be careful of that knee-jerk reaction. Uh, I, I did a piece once upon a time. I think I may have even mentioned this on the podcast, right? The Donald Trump question, if Donald Trump says it, does that mean it's wrong? Meaning mm-hmm. the fact that someone who you vehemently might disagree with, whether that's a person or an institution or a party or a company, the, the fact that they may suggest something cannot be an a priori reason to reject it. it. It should be rejected on its own merits, not based on who is articulating it. So there is a, that's a challenge, but I think it's one that we need to continue to rise to. I think the question for me is uh, that's coming up while you're speaking is how much do we need to ask activists to be pragmatic when they are activists by choice, right? Meaning like everyone has a role here and I think activists are meant to be idealistic. That doesn't mean that they are not also pragmatic, but I just mean that they occupy a certain space and that there are other spaces that other people occupy that are pragmatism first, right? And the relationship between those two camps, and not that it's so neatly defined, but that relationship at the end of the day is probably what's going to get us into a place where we address your point, which is how these people in these developing nations going to have power literally tomorrow, versus how are we going to end up in the future of 2073 that Rebecca was talking about. And Rebecca was great about this, saying, look, there's been way too much of the kind of virtue signaling and shaming individuals for the choices they make, whether that's the 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 idea that you have to have a kind of an ascetic virtuous life in order to be a meaningful contributor to a future of less carbon intensivity has actually been one of the problems of the movement it's a kind of a scolding hectoring and that's i guess what my question is about activists which is you're right activists are are rarely subtle and they're rarely anything other than black or white otherwise they wouldn't be activists but we have this dialectic and conversation constantly of the tension between reform and revolution. I know where I stand on this, that revolution, you, you'd better be sure that the system you're living in right now is so <laughs> irredeemably wrong and problematic that you're willing to embrace the destruction that comes with revolution. Mm. Otherwise, we should aspire toward reform. And similarly, activists, if they are too extreme, either in their moral dudgeon or their way in which they communicate things, how much are people turned off by that? How much do people feel they're either being lectured to or judged or put down for the choices they're making versus actually helping a large number of people or institutions make those changes. And I think that's the problem of of both the language and the approach. No, that's fair. I, I think I've been very vocal and open on this podcast that I am a long time like person that was turned off by the climate movement, not because I didn't think that it was a big issue. I was never a climate change denier. It was just that it was what Rebecca was saying. And Thelma and Rebecca are the wrong people to complain to about this because they're trying to do something different. I just felt there weren't any on ramps. And I, I felt, I did feel like to be involved, you had to be heartbroken. There's so much discussion over grief and despair. And it just kind of sounds like a therapy camp a little bit. And in addition to the guilt of like doing all these things that I wanted to do to live a normal life. So you're totally right. Rebecca was great on that. And it's really refreshing to hear, honestly. It also like it, it, it's a hedge against people that can then dunk on climate activism by pointing at people and saying, you're not so virtuous as you say that you are. So if you don't take that, that virtue as necessary, uh, to, as a necessary part of the climate movement, we just remove that problem entirely. Right. Well, we will continue having these conversations. Um, you know, I think we might do better in embracing a little more diversity of 
of political views in this conversation, but we will leave that to another day and another podcast. And now we will turn to the news of the week that people may have missed that we had noticed that we think you shouldn't have missed. All right. So let's start today talking about education, education worldwide. Our World in Data just updated their page on global education. We also have some new figures from UNESCO. So let's talk about our World in Data first. There have been big changes in numbers on the number of people who have received at least some basic formal education. I'm going to talk about starting from 1900, just to prove a point. In 1900, 66.8% of the world had no formal education and only 33.2% had at least some basic formal education. Fast forward to 2020, now we have 13% of the world with no formal education, and 87% has at least some basic formal education. So obviously, a lot of work to go there, but also incredible changes, and 86.81% of the world is now literate. So that's getting close to 100%. Wow. And I have a feeling that in 1900, in ways that we'll not be able to prove that the 35% or so that were getting some kind of, as you put it, formal education, that some of that formal education we would now treat as more basic or rudimentary. Not knocking educated people in the 19th century mm-hmm. or the turn of the 20th, but one-room schoolhouse, maybe only going to school through 12 or 13 or 14 years of age, probably far, far, far fewer women. In fact, not probably, certainly. So the change is probably even more dramatic than the statistics. One thing that I also always want to add to these global numbers, in addition to the one that you just made about how the quality of education is getting better as well, is that because the global population has been increasing so much, the fact that these percentages are still so high is even more of a success than it may seem at first blush. And then, you know, turning to specifically women and girls, these are the new figures from UNESCO. We're talking about girls now up to the age of 18, because this these are data points about schooling through what Americans would call generally high school. Since 2015, 50 million more girls have been enrolled in school globally. So that's counting primary school and then middle school and high school. And completion rates at each level are increasing, although they still need work. And we shared this fact on social media recently, and I caught a lot of flack for not including that this disparity in numbers is actually not in favor of boys versus girls. So we were just celebrating the fact that 50 million more girls are now in school since 2015, which is great. But also worth noting that more boys are out of school globally than girls. So it's 122 million girls are currently out of school and 128 boys, 128 million boys are currently out of school. 95 boys complete high school for every 100 girls. So improvements to be made across both fronts. But the fact that 50 million more girls are now in school from 2015 is definitely something to applaud. Yeah, I wonder if that segues at all with the conversation we had months ago with Richard Reeves about the struggles of young men. Granted, a lot of what he was writing about was more in the United States in a more post-1960s, 70s changes in society, and also a conversation that we will have uh, in a few weeks about 1960s feminism. But that's simply a teaser for a future discussion. Like I think in general, the, you know, these arcs remain pretty astonishingly unarguable statistically. The, the question is, one, why is that not more evident to more people? Meaning, why has that reality not sort of penetrated our sense of reality? Why are the numbers so surprising? Or, and why do we remain of such a, a different view? We being, if you, if you talk to many of us, I mean, look, sometimes both you and I read these news items and statistics and react with surprise because it, it also 
cuts against what sometimes we think is going to happen, even though we're already predisposed to look for things happening that are good. And yeah, maybe there's a time lag, maybe it takes a while for change to sink in, for people to realize that things are different. I don't know. But I do think that these are the kind of things going on that A, we should be more aware of, which is what we're trying to do and bringing it to light every week. And B, the fact that we're not collectively more aware of it says something about our own filters, our own lenses. Well, one thing, so one quick point about Richard Reeves, and I think this was the misconception that <clears throat> I got all of that flack for on social media is that these boys that are out of school are primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's just like a completely different data set than when we're talking about kind of the rise of women educationally in high-income countries like the U.S. That being said, again, there is still a larger amount of boys out of school than girls, primarily because they're being asked to work as kids. So still an important point, point to make, but just a, a different one. Um, and as for you know, these stats and not being in front of our awareness, I think part of it has to do with the fact that so many of these large global organizations and NGOs have so many appeals that make not only the news, but just get, get to us through social media and other methods that talk about the 122 million girls and 128 million boys that are out of school because we want to fix that. We want 100% on everything, right? We want 100% kids in school and completing school. Um, and they should be raising money for that, and we should be trying to fix that. But that does sometimes cloud, as we're saying now, all this progress that has been made. And I do think sometimes that people would be even more um, willing to give money if they knew that all their money had actually gone someplace that worked. I remember talking to a friend of mine that works at the UN specifically on global poverty campaigns. And I was telling her global poverty has gone completely down in the last, you know, 50 years or so, maybe not in the th last three to five years, especially with the pandemic. But generally, it's been a wild success story. She was like, no way. That's not true. You got to send me data on that. And I was like, sure, I'm happy to do that. And it was actually helpful for her because she was getting really burned out because she just kept on thinking we're sending out all these appeals for money and there is money coming in, but still nothing is happening. Wow. I mean, that's kind of a depressing <laughs> Someone who works in the middle of this, who has been so <laughs> overcome with just the daily dose of how bad things are. I, like I've, I know people have worked for refugee organizations, humanitarian organizations. The challenge of that work is that's what you see because that's what your work dictates. And there are real issues and these are real problems, but you do tend to have your days filled with it. It's almost as if I remember when my kids were growing up and we had friends, one of whom had been an emergency room surgeon. And I think they were like going to arrange a play date and the person was adamant about their son not playing on a trampoline because the he had seen so many cases of kids getting injured on trampolines because he worked as an emergency room surgeon, all of which was absolutely accurate statistically, but it it made it seem as if there was this easy equation between sort of, you know trampolines and fatal and or really bad injuries. And in that way, even these people who work in the midst of, of agencies devoted to solving these problems can often feel like they're making absolutely zero positive movement because all they see every day is all the things that remain to be done. And I think part of the point of saying, hey, wait a minute, actually, there has been real change here. I mean, maybe there's I, not. I don't know if trampoline safety is any better. <laughs> That's a whole other issue. I was going to say, I don't have stats on trampoline safety, but my neighbor when I was growing up was in a full body cast because he fell off a trampoline for like a year. So I also have oh a powerful god. emotional anecdote about trampoline safety. Oh my safety. god, you've now just like proven the point. I, I'm clearly, it was a terrible, terrible neglectful parent. It's a wonder that my children made it. Anyway, let's move on from trampoline safety. Maybe we'll look into that one day. Um, the Federal Reserve just released their triennial, meaning it happens every three years, survey of consumer finances. There's a lot of uh, information in this, but one thing that Axios reported on and I'd like to highlight here is that there was a new high in 2022 of Americans holding stocks at 58%. So that beats the last high of 53%, which was pre the financial crisis. Hopefully this new high doesn't bode some kind of crisis ahead. And one little piece of interesting data in that as well is that more Americans are now buying individual stocks rather than mutual funds. 
I mean, a lot of this is still driven by the change from the 20th century defined benefits plan where you got you got a pension plan that was managed by your company. So you worked for GM. And part of dealing with that is you got a pension and some of the and, and that was managed for you by GM. And today almost all those retirement plans are what they call defined contribution plans where you put your money aside and then you allocate it in a in a menu. And most of that menu is mutual funds and ETFs that own stock. So it's still true that most Americans as stock ownership has gone up, are, are owning stocks via these vehicles, uh, which means they're still owning them, but just maybe they're not buying them individually. I suppose there's always been a pushback on the individual buying of stocks because it's riskier. You expose yourself to one decision rather than a basket. But it does point to the fact that, you know, owning stocks is not just this playground of or casino for the wealthy and for Wall Street. It's become a much more ubiquitous aspect of how all Americans, many Americans, a large percentage, as you just said, of Americans are in equity markets or in stocks because that's part of their long-term savings and retirement plan. And should probably be more part of the picture when we talk about savings rates because that doesn't show up. I mean, this is a little wonky with statistics, but that doesn't mm -hmm. show up as part of your savings. So when a lot of people said you're not saving, mm. you could be owning stocks, but it wouldn't show up as a part of a savings rate. And I would say there was a really, really good film that came out called Dumb Money about this whole Robin Hood episode on Wall Street, which you and I talked about at the time on an earlier podcast. Uh, but it's a really, really interesting, smart movie about sort of the democratization of people owning stocks versus a few really rich and not so nice Wall Street hedge fund and other managers. How much did we make today? Five million. How much did we lose today? A billion. You got rich dudes pissing in their pants right now. Dumb money, man. Happy to take it. Wall Street? is betting that this company is gonna fail. If he's in, I'm in. If he's in, I'm in. GameStop, those shares not stopping. Those stocks only gonna go up. When they hit, I'm gonna buy you a mansion. Yeah, and as you're pointing out, there's certainly risk in that, but just purely anecdotally, you know, we spoke a few episodes back about uh, the black cohort in Gen Z being particularly entrepreneurial. And I think this is also related to the stock thing because just from what I see around me from, from friends and people in my cohort, there is a huge take up of stocks and the building generational wealth sort of movement in the black community, which I think is fantastic. And I also just see a lot of people around me in these stock kind of groups where, okay, it's not technically financial advice, but there are all kinds of these groups that are trying to show people how to get into the stock market, how it works. There are people on social media uh, that's directed at millennials. And honestly, I think it's fantastic. I would love to see that at much higher numbers than 58%. And a lot of that frenzy around GameStop and Robinhood was fueled by, as you just mentioned, by social media boards, particularly by Reddit groups. And... I think what you're seeing now is while that was an extreme and dramatic episode about individuals and stock ownership, it, this is becoming much more part of our culture uh, for better or for worse. But I do think it means that in, in many ways, that old system of defined benefits, you got a job in your company, managed your pension plan, and then you got your money was and is a more paternalistic one. It's one where you sort of, you give over your future to people who are supposed to know better, and then you get your money doled out when you retire. The positive side of this world of people owning equities and more individually managing their own retirement and savings incomes is that you do de facto take more ownership of it. Now, yes, maybe you make more mistakes and maybe there's more risk, but the idea that you are more responsible for your future or that you have the capacity to be responsible for your future in many ways is an empowering one and an important one. And I think at least a good thing. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. We hope these conversations offer 
an antidote and alternative to the daily diet of doom, particularly in these days when war and dysfunction seem to be high on the collective radar screen. And even in those moments, it's a good thing to step back, take a very deep breath and look at all that is going on in the world other than that or in addition to that. So we will be back next week with more of the same. And thank you all. Thank you so much for listening. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Plug Glomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, the Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.